Hello, Win Multifamily listeners. We've had a bit of a delay in our regular programming, and I just wanted to take a moment and let you know why and when you can expect to see the show back. At the beginning of this new year, we've taken a little bit of time to reflect back on how we can better serve our listeners. And one of the things that we're going to be doing starting in February is rebranding the podcast. We'll no longer be called by our current name, but instead we'll be moving to Real Estate Investing for Professionals. And we're going to be adding on a new co-host as well, Carmen Detloff. I'm really excited about having her on the show. She's going to bring a whole new dimension to the content. So I hope you'll stay with us. But until then, here's a couple of bonus episodes. Welcome. You are listening to the Willamette Investors Network Multifamily Show. We are a nationwide network of investors, syndicators, and industry professionals that invest in real estate together. We believe that investing is a team sport, and our goal is to connect you with the people, experiences, and education that will help you along your journey to multifamily success. Welcome to the Win Multifamily Show. My name is Daniel Homland. Today, our guest is Adam Adams. Adam, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. I'm excited. So for, for the listeners who are curious, Adam was on episode 62, where he talked about growing your real estate investment club. And today he's coming back again. He is a well-known speaker in the real estate market, and he's going to share with us a little bit about how to vet your operating team. Is that right? Absolutely. I think I think that it's critically important to vet an operating team. Um, I've actually... So I, I don't, your listener may have heard things like this, like uh, there's a lot of sponsors who do what they call co-sponsoring, where they're kind of joining, joint venturing. Um, one person's kind of helping with a few parts, maybe uh, raising more money and one's doing a few other parts, maybe focus more on maybe like um, operating the deal or finding the deal or something like that. And what I've, what I've done in the past is my team, we, we syndicate deals as well. And I'm a passive investor myself in about 1100 doors I've been, been passive in. And I, I love doing that. Uh, but I've, I've also made mistakes, um, lots of different types of mistakes over my uh, investing career. And one of them, one of the major ones that happened was when we were going to do that joint venturing or co GPing, where my team ended up wanting to bring in more of the capital for a deal that was already there. And I didn't vet the operator to the level that I should. And it almost went really, really bad. In fact, somebody on the team, on the operating team, actually had a securities violation. And if I would have brought our passive investor money into that deal, it would have tainted my reputation forever, regardless if the deal itself worked out perfectly. I I think that um, I would have I would have lost that reputation for a long time. And it made me think before this was prior to the first time that I went passive about two years ago. And when I became a passive investor, I thought it's even you know, that much more critical to just make sure that the people that you're working with are um, doing what they say that they're doing, that we have the right steps toward vetting them. And so in in today's episode, I want to share with the listener and just help them to understand these four major key pieces toward um, actually vetting an operator. 
vetting a syndicator that they're about to go passive in their deals. Um, and we can we can dive deep into any of these parts if you if you'd like to, especially part number three. Um, I think it 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 opens up a can of worms. But um, yeah, just to kind of brief them, uh, there I want I want to talk about gut checks and then finding out what the person's track record is and then understanding the market really well. And the fourth one is is doing um, doing actual background checks. Um, fourth and final step is to do a background check on the operating team. Now, obviously, this this is a critical bit of information for the passive investor, just understanding how to vet somebody. But I, I, I have seen that it's often very confusing to passive investors exactly how the GP teams form. You, you mentioned co co-sponsors earlier or or co-GPs. And, uh, you know, before I'd been involved in syndications, that was never a term that I had heard. And, and I think most passive investors are in that situation as well. Um, can you really quickly define what that term is and, yeah. and why it matters to a passive investor? Of course. Um, well, I'll just, I'll just mention that over the last few years, I've been uh, really strongly advocating for staying away from what I call the blind leading the blind. Now, the blind leading the blind just means an operator that's never done anything ever, trying to do all of the pieces by themselves. And I think that is um, just a recipe for disaster. And because there's other people that agree with me, there's others that say, that would be really bad for me to take all this passive investor money and do something I've never done before with it. Um, that could be scary. So what they're what they're doing, what a lot of general partners have decided to do is on their first deal or two, they will often, if they're newer, they'll often co-GP or co-operate a deal with um, a team that's been established. They've been around the block. They've they've probably sold one of their deals, et cetera. So that, that's um, a way where basically there's a team out there that they they could do all of this on their own because they've done it which is there which is first the chicken or the egg right it's hard to say if you're brand new what to do so what they've done is a newer operating team that wants to get into the business they can help protect their passive investors by working with a team that's already been there and what they have to do in order to get there is to just add value to that already existing team. One of the few things that, that they can do is bring a new deal. Like, hey, I found a deal. I just can't do the rest of it. Can you please help me manage it? Can you help me run it? And that's a good way to protect. Another way to add value to like an, a new team is, is to have, if maybe if you have passive investors that are following you that wanna get in on your deal, but they will feel a lot more comfortable if you have that um, the gray hair helping you out on that deal. So this is what I call co-GP is two teams, one usually more experienced and the other one usually just trying to add value to that team in one way or another. Yeah, this this is a really important dynamic, uh, not only for the passive investor to, to understand, but a lot of people that are looking to break into multifamily, uh, many of them, if they're you know brand new, don't realize you have to have experience in order to be in this game. Uh, you, loan brokers are not going to talk to you unless you've signed on a loan. 
you know, property brokers are not going to talk to you unless you have operated a deal. And so you have to have experience in order to get into this game. So like you said, chicken and egg problem and people that are trying to break in or find their on-ramp into multifamily need to realize that they can't do it by themselves. Nobody's going to take them seriously. 100%. They have to go find an experienced partner and partner with them. And to a certain extent, you know, learn under their wing. It's, it's, it's like an advanced apprenticeship to a certain extent. You have to bring value to the person who is, is uh, experienced and you're going to learn from them in turn. And that, that dynamic can be kind of difficult sometimes to communicate to passive investors, but you know, just stating it like it is, there's the sponsor of the deal is the experienced partner and you are bringing value there and working on the deal in order to maximize the return for the investor. 100%. And I, th I think it's so important, you know, my, my main thought to this episode was just to help the passive, you know, understand how do they, how do they vet these two teams? How do they vet the one team if it's only one to be able to make sure they're going to be saving, uh, not wasting money? Because um, there's a lot that can happen. Um, but at, at the same time, I think it's also beneficial for somebody who wants to operate these deals, even whether it's right now or eventually, they want to kind of be one of these co-sponsors as we're we're talking about for them to understand that it's not anything to be embarrassed about like oh i'm partnering with somebody else because i can't take this down no you're protecting your past investor that's exactly what you're doing like don't Absolutely. feel bad about um joining forces with somebody who's been there and done that has a little bit of gray hair uh, because it's the way that you're going to be able to protect the past investor money it's the way that you're going to be make sure that that you don't underwrite the insurance incorrectly for instance like if you're um, purchasing a new property and you just buy a property based on the insurance that the seller has been paying you could be way underestimating the actual what the cap rate would be the actual income could be the net operating income anyway because that other seller might not have had to have that same type of insurance but your lender might require some much, much higher amount of insurance. And that one itty bitty change can take that cap rate from an eight cap to a six cap over one quick and easy thing. So it's just really important to have those people on your team, make sure you're raising enough money up front so that you have enough in reserves, making sure that the capital requirements are, are met, making sure that, um, when it, I guess what it boils down to is just making sure that the deal can be operated appropriately and safely. So for sure, it's really, really helpful to, okay. to note. I, I did want to kind of throw in why that's important for people that are looking to be GPs, but let's, let's return our focus to the limited partner because a lot of the people that listen to the show are looking to, you know, be a passive investor. They're, they're putting money into a deal. They expect a return. How can they vet their operators? Um, well, first off, they're the most, uh, I, I'm trying to think of the best way to say it, the most important, they're all important. So I don't want to say that, but the first thing that you want to look at is what we call a gut check. It's, it's the quickest and easiest way to know if you should go to the second step. 
And make sure you write that down. If, if you're relying heavily on, if the gut check is, I feel good about them, I automatically can ignore everything else. Then you're listening, you're hearing me wrong. It doesn't mean that, that they've passed all the, all the tests with flying colors. It means they've passed the first and foremost test that's going to allow them to even get into that next level. And really what that means is some of us, we feel like we're a really good character, uh, a judge of character. And so when we meet somebody or when we hear them, we, we feel like we know if we can work with them or not. What we'll notice within this gut check is there, there's a, there's something that I call dissonance. Now I, I was a musician growing up. I, when I, my college degree is music education. So my, my whole thing is this thing uh, about this dissonance, which is very easy to, to notice. Um, I guess almost spiritually when we, when we meet somebody, there's, there's res things that resonate. We can kind of feel it if something's just not adding up. And that's like with a chord that the, the notes are just too close together. It doesn't sound pretty. It sounds dissonant. It has that wah-wah effect, we call it. Um, and so when you notice that you're, you have an operator where you feel like there's a lot that you should feel comfortable about them, you're like, well, what they're saying seems to make sense. But if you feel that dissonance, that, that where the notes are just too close together, where it's not quite adding up, that's generally a good um, first step to say to back out of the deal. You don't feel comfortable about the person. Now you don't want to, you probably don't want to invest with them. And so again, just because you feel good about them doesn't mean you're, you're going to take that as I'm definitely going to invest because you still need to do step two, three, and four. Um, so yeah, anyway, gut check number one, making sure they're authentic. That they really are who they say they are, that you feel good about that at least. Once that's happened, now it's time for you to um, to go to their track record and to to see if you can pull up their, their track record. Make sure that you can see their name on the deals that they say that they own. Um, make sure to call references of, of potential um, uh, past investors that have already worked with them. And so you want to start um, getting a feel for who this person is, if they are who they say they are, just by starting this thing that I call a background check. You can you can Google them. You can search for investors that have worked with them. You can look up their, if to make sure that their names are on the um, entities that own the properties that they say that they own. That's kind of where you can start, making sure that they have a track record. When, when you feel like you... And I do have one thing to mention on this track record. I I said making sure that they have a track record. I think the most important thing is to make sure that the track record that they say they have, that you can verify it. For instance, I was new at one time. Daniel was new at one time too. And you might find an operator that passes the gut check and they don't have a track record on their own. Now you're just going to vet the people that they're partnering with to make sure that if they say that they've done something that they, that you can verify that they have, it makes a lot of difference to, to see that they've closed deals, they sold deals, they've given money. But the most important thing within the file following through this track record is understanding 
that what they say that they've done, that you can verify that they have done it. If you can't see it, that's a red flag, meaning don't even worry about the next step. If, if you can verify what's their track record, what they're saying that they've done, then that means that you go to number three. And number three is, is a piece that I would say most passive investors, they completely ignore. And that's because it's a little bit of work. There is work to do on number three. And a passive investor wants to feel like they're being passive. They want to, they probably, you know, work at Intel or work at Google or work at Microsoft. They have a high income. Um, they're a doctor, an attorney, whatever it is, they, they have that high income and they are great at what they do that brings in that income. And they do feel like any kind of um, looking outside of this, outside of what they're doing to bring that in, almost can slow them down. And so when it comes to market research or doing your due diligence on the market, I feel like it gets missed by a lot. They just want to trust the operator. And that's a big piece because in 2020, 2021, there's a lot of operators that have been looking at deals that are in like third world, <laughs> um, third tier um, tertiary markets. And the reason that they're doing this is they, those operators, they are looking at, you know, DFW, um, Denver, Seattle, um, you know, some of the great markets in the Carolinas and Florida that are really, really have a long track record of providing returns. And the amount of demand is so high that they, those newer operators feel like they can't really compete there anymore. And so they're, they've been trying to go to these other markets that don't really have data to back up why you should even invest there. They might be chasing what we call cap rates. They're like, well, if I'm going to go to DFW, I have to buy it at a five cap. And if I go to some other podunk, some podunk town that almost nobody's investing in, I'm able to find an eight and a half cap. And so that's where I want to go. And what ends up happening is the numbers, they look really, really strong in those markets because the cap rates are high. But the business plan that those operators have learned about, that business plan just doesn't work in a tertiary market. They're saying to themselves, we need to put in 6,500 per door so that we can bump rents by $120. And they feel like everybody else has told them that that works in DFW. But out here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for instance, putting in $6,500 to bring up the rents by $120 per unit does not work. And so what they're finding is they're over improving and they're not able to achieve their projections. And this is a big thing that happens when we're when we find an operator that's going to one of these tertiary or secondary markets and they're trying to underwrite the way that they would in a strong market. It just doesn't work. And so we can go into a lot of detail on market due diligence on this episode if we have time and if if that's where you want to take it, Daniel. 
Um, well, I, I was just... going to make one comment. And yeah, uh, this is something that I've actually talked to a couple of investors just over this last weekend about. But the, the more that you're, you do uh, apartment investing, the more you realize that every deal is, is very nuanced. And knowing your mar- obviously knowing your market is, is critical. Having a market operator that knows how much you can put into a property in order to raise the rents, or if you can even do that, is critical. One question that I like to ask operators is, when are distributions going to start? Or when do you project that they're going to start? And here, you know, some people are looking, some investors are looking for opportunities where distributions start next month, and they come in on a monthly basis, you know, a monthly check that's always there. Some are looking for deep value add deals where you're putting a lot of capital investment at the beginning, and it might take nine months, 12 months in order to get that distribution. But having an operator that that knows the difference, why a distribution will start at a particular time and what causes that is is not, is a pretty good vetting question because you'll get to hear the thought processes behind their business model. Uh, so I, I just wanted to throw that out there as a question yeah. you can ask operators. When are distributions going to start and, and why are they starting then? And there's one piece that's going to be really important for the listener on this, on what a distribution really is, because there's two types of distributions. There's one where it's return on capital and the other one where it's return of capital. And you mentioned that some operators, they start paying out the first month. Um, The probabilities are much higher than 95% that if you're going to get the your first distribution on the very first month the probability is that you, that's actually not going to be a distribution where you're getting making money on your money it's where they're giving you some of your money back and mm-hmm. so just to give you an example of what that might look like is that there's um, some operators that they over raise they'll raise more than they need for instance and they might be saying that we're going to give you like an eight percent return uh each year and that first year on some of these types of deals it's it's good and bad it's good because you're getting a monthly check and it feels great to get that and it's also good because you have it all it means that they have plenty of money in the bank it means that they've left a lot of money in the bank. If something bad happens, they've got the capital there. But the reason why it's bad uh, is because um, you're actually just getting some of your own money back. So if I if they if they're doing return of capital and they, maybe you invested one hundred thousand and they're doing like eight uh, percent over the first year, perhaps at the end of twelve months you only have 92,000 of your own money in that deal. They've literally just given you eight of your thousand back to you. And now at some point in the future, they're going to be able to start giving you return on capital. And so it's, it's going to be critical because you want to know, you as the passive investor want to understand, like, should I have just set that money under my bed and just went under my bed and taken $8,000 of my own money the first year. What, Cause that's what it really truly is. It's you're, you're getting a check. It probably feels good, but the money may as well have just sat under your mattress. Cause it's not Absolutely. doing anything for you yet. Yeah. So 
a good question is, I love that question, Daniel. Um, you want to make sure that you understand when you're reading these documents, just these two words that are two letters and one is OF and the other one is ON. Return on is, is, a, is an actual distribution. <laughs> Return of, they claim it or they call it a distribution, but it's almost a sneaky trick in some cases. Well, I would it, say there are some operators that are that disclose, but there are also some operators that that it's on the paperwork, but they don't spend the time telling you that hey, I'm going to give you your money back. You could just put this under your mattress if you want, but if not, I'll just hold on to it and then give it back to you. Mm -hmm. I, I've also seen investor portals or software that that do classify these things wrong. They'll they'll call it distributions when it's return of capital. And and so this is where we get into a little bit of the nuance here. It, it is entirely possible that the operator has found a great deal that is cash flowing from day one. And, and in that case, maybe it is return on investment. Um, and the other thing to point out here, too, is that you have to be very careful in between those two because the IRS treats them differently. You're taxed on one, the, the return on your investment, but your but return of your capital is not taxed the same way. And you should make sure that, you know, whoever is preparing your tax, you know, your, your tax filings knows which is which and how to account for it. So it's, it's something to be very careful of. I, I agree with that 100%. So, so I love that question. That is a super good question and very interesting for a past investor to be able to say, uh, what is this? Is this on mm -hmm. or of? Uh, because it makes a huge difference in so many, so many different ways. All right. Point four. Point four is doing background checks. And so honestly, background checks themselves generally cost money. They um, cost you um, anywhere from 20 to 30 bucks per person, unless you're using a private investigator, then maybe it costs 100 or 200 per person. But if you're going to be doing background checks, there's a couple ways that you can do it. And the reason I put this as the last thing, you know, the first thing is the gut check. Do they pass my gut check? The second one is, is looking up their track record, Googling them, et cetera. The third one is just making sure that they're in a solid market instead of a crappy one. And now that they've passed all three of those, now your next thing is just to be able to run a background check. There's two ways to run a background. Well, you could also hire a PI, but there's two other ways to do a background check. The first one is to go to and, and get the social security number from every operator, every single operator. Um, if it, let's just say Daniel and I were co-GPing, co-operating, co-sponsoring um, a deal, then um, I have people on my team, uh, DJ and Manny and Chad, you know, you would do a, a background check on, on Daniel. You'd also want to do one on me. You'd also want to do one on DJ and Manny and Chad. And you would want to make sure that the background checks come, come back to you clean. Um, one of the most important things on the background checks is to make sure that they're, they have not committed a securities violation. If, if anybody on there has committed a securities violation, they're going to be in probably in some really serious trouble, which um, basically means that they've uh, defrauded somebody or they've 
they've said that they've said return of, or they've already said return on when it was really return of. Um, one of these securities violations shows that they don't have integrity, that they're probably going to find a way to, to skim some of that money for themselves. And, and um, another thing that they have that, uh, that can make a securities violation that I've seen is people rob, I always just say borrowing, let's say borrowing um, Peter to pay Paul. And all that means is we all have so many different bank accounts. And when we're running and operating these deals, um, sometimes one of our deals might have a lower amount of cash in the bank when we need it. And, but another one just has a, 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 an extra amount of capital just sitting in the bank. And what I've seen operators do, which is completely illegal, not, uh, not at all allowed, is they've, quote, borrowed from Peter to pay Paul. It's time to make distributions or it's time to um, upgrade the roof or whatever. And without disclosing it, they, they take from some of their passive investors, they borrow this money from that one uh, op, uh, deal, take care of this other deal, temp, they say temporarily, and then they feel like at the end of the month, they should be able to easily put it back and quote, nobody will know that that's a huge securities violation. You're not allowed to do, you're not allowed to do that. Um, and there, there have been a lot of people that have actually gotten in trouble for doing that. When it's you and I, sometimes we say, okay, I've got my personal account. My personal account's got plenty of capital. My business account has this. I'll transfer it in there for a minute. You're still not allowed to do that. But it, the, um, I guess the, the trouble that you'll get into is exponential when the operator's doing that on a security. Uh, when they're borrow, when they're actually have your investor money, they're not allowed to do that. They'd have to disclose. There'd be a lot of different hoops that they would jump into, and people have gotten in trouble for that. And so I, I would say there's a lot of different ways that you, the, a lot of different things that you could find that a that somebody would, that a a sponsor would be doing. Other things that you might want to look for in these background checks is if they have a really poor credit score or they're in heavy, heavy debt. Um, some of these things can show, not always, but they can show that they're a poor money manager. And it's just, uh, it can be a red flag or at least a yellow flag if you would want to be putting your money into one of these deals. So again, with background checks, there's two ways, two main ways. The first way is you get the social security number of each individual. Now, Daniel and I, we're fairly conservative people, so I don't want everybody to have my social. I don't want to just give it to all of my passive investors to just randomly run um, this because I'll often have 40 or 50 or even 60 passive investors in one deal, and that makes me scared to give that many people my social because um, they haven't even put that money in. And so you might find that that your operator is a little uneasy and it's okay for them to, it's okay for you to know that they feel a bit uneasy. It's because they don't want to give it to that many people. So there's a second way to do it. And it's a little bit easier on you and it's a little less awkward between for your relationship with them. And you want to start by just saying, Adam, 
I'm, I just want to let you know that I'm going to be running background checks. I can either take your social security number and I can do this, or what I thought would be easier is I could um, give you a website where you jump into there, you put in your own social, I don't need it. And when, when it comes, it's going to be emailed to me automatically. I want you to put my email in there, et cetera, so that I can look at it. Now, if, if I was not willing to do that, especially if you, the passive investor, was paying for it, then that's a huge red flag. If I'm, if I'm more than willing to just put my info in there so you can look it up, um, then that's a really good sign on its own. But you still want to look at the background check. You still want to check it out. Um, and you don't have to get my social. You can give me a website. I'll put in my social. And you'll just get the email so you can check out that background check on me, on Manny, on DJ, on Chad, on Daniel, on whoever Daniel is also working with as we're co-GPing. You're going to want to do one on each and every person. Again, oh. 20 to 30 bucks per person. So that's why it's the last thing you do because you might end up having um, anywhere from three to 12-ish people, hopefully not more than that, uh, but three to 12-ish people that you will be doing a background check on. So that could be up to three or 400 bucks. And it's worth it to make sure you're protecting your investment. All right, Adam, four great steps for vetting your operator and some good discussion there. Thank you for the, the, the points that you raised here. I hope that people that are looking into investing in real estate syndications, take these to heart execute on them and go and vet the people that you are investing your money with. Adam, how, how can the Win Multifamily listeners get in touch with you? Uh, the best way is if, if they're a past investor and they want to jump on our list, see our deals, um, go to realbluespruce.com and literally just click that button at the top says get on the list. And then you can start getting emails from us and seeing deals that we will have. Um, if they're an operator, and they wanted to reach out to me, they just jump onto, onto Facebook. I'm easily searchable, Adam AAA Adams. They can just jump onto Facebook and, and connect with me there. Adam, it's always great to catch up with you. And you and I are going to have to talk about music sometime. I'm an avid piano player and, and we'll do awesome. that. Love it. <laughs> All right. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Hello, Win Multifamily listeners. As you know, this podcast is all about learning to work in teams so that you can buy cash flowing multifamily properties. If you'd like to learn more about that, please click subscribe. If you're interested in the type of investments that we do at Along Capital, please go to alongcapital.com slash investors. That's Alon, A-A-L-O-N, capital.com. We'd like to set up a one-on-one -on -one phone call with you to talk about your real estate investment goals. 